Ask the Expert. This is a brief and informative and lively discussion with experts in type 1 diabetes and related interdisciplinary research. We're recording this event and we're going to post it on the Sugar Science uh, YouTube channel shortly after the presentation. Feel free to engage with our guest with questions in the chat or raise your hand. And coming to us today from a Boston University Medical School is Dr. Barbara E. Corky. She is Professor Emeritus there, and her current focus is on developing clinical basic behavioral collaborative multi-PI projects to involve, explore novel approaches to understand and treat metabolic diseases. Dr. Corky was the Zoltan Cohn uh, Professor of Medicine and Vice Chair for Research in the Department of Medicine at Boston University. And she's been a leader in the fields of diabetes and obesity re research for over 50 years with about 200 uh, related publications, wow, and 40 years of continuous government research support. Finally, she has received uh, numerous honors, including the NIH Merit Award, the National Honorary Membership in Iota Sigma Phi, National Honor Society of Women in Chemistry, Women in Science Lecture at uh, Boston Museum of Science, the George Bray Founders Award uh, of the Obesity Society and the Charles H. Best Lectureship and, uh, and Award, uh, University of Toronto and the Banting Medal for Scientific Achievement from the ADA. The last is really huge. Um, welcome and thank you so much for uh, joining us today. I'm really excited to hear you know, this talk. Well, wonderful and thank you very, very much for inviting me. As you know, uh, type one diabetes is not my field. I've come to it through some very odd circumstances. The, and what I know about type 1 diabetes is that autoantibodies are early indicated that type 1 diabetes may progress, that beta cells are destroyed by an autoimmune process, and that so far immune therapy has not been very effective. And I think interestingly, the cause of autoimmunity is not known. Yeah. And we also know there are environmental factors that enhance the likelihood of getting type one diabetes and those influences are not known. So um, I'm going to present a hypothesis that's based on my work that was never intended to address type one diabetes, but it comes together in a rather interesting way. And it's a model of what might cause autoimmunity. Hmm. Um, and the good thing about this model is it's very testable. And uh, if, if it proves valid, and that definitely needs some studies to prove it valid, uh, there are some obvious potentially effective therapies that could prevent develop, further development of type one diabetes. So the idea that I'm presenting today came to me based on work in three totally unrelated areas, unrelated to each other and unrelated to, to type one diabetes, as a matter of fact. The first is sepsis. The second is wound healing. And the third is basal hyperinsulinemia that is the precursor to type two diabetes. Hmm. And um, so the, the studies in sepsis the studies in, 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 uh, in sepsis were done a very long time ago. And now just to refresh everyone's memory, sepsis is a systemic inflammatory disease that includes inflammation, fever, anorexia, a drop in blood glucose, increases in cytokines, including TNF-alpha, a drop in the energy state the ATP ADP ratio, and often vomiting, low insulin, increased fat and ketones. And so 
what we learn from these studies that's going to be relevant to the development of this model is that TNF-alpha, which rises in these systemic inflammatory diseases, inhibits fatty acid oxidation. Now, this is bad because under these conditions where food is not being taken in, fatty acid is the only energy source. And under extreme circumstances, inhibiting the only energy source will ultimately lead to cell death. So the take home from this is that TNF inhibits fatty acid oxidation. So we're going to remember this through the next two areas. The next uh, study was done by a, a student, an MD PhD student of mine, who was interested in surgery and was curious to know why wound healing was defective in diabetes. And so in order to study this, we obtained 20 cultures of human fibroblasts. 10 of them were for control subjects and 10 of them were from type one diabetics. And these were pair matched, same passage, et cetera, and treated over many passages through this, with the same media. So they had not been in a patient for a very long time and they were not being exposed to anything unusual. They were all being exposed to exactly the same thing. That's what I intended to say. <laughs> and um, what we, the first thing that we found was when we stained these cells that were grown in the presence of fatty acids, the control cells accumulated some lipid, the top A and B. But if you look at that, uh, the lipid was mostly in the plasma membrane around the outside of the cell. However, the diabetic cells were different. Under basal conditions, they had more lipid in them, but under um, growth in fatty acids, they became full of lipid. And this was totally unexpected. We don't know what that meant. We, and now the student was interested in wound healing and, and among the various factors that are involved, bradykinin is, is an, a good agonist. It works, it interacts with a membrane receptor and it elevates cytosolic free calcium. So the next big surprise that we found was that if we compared the control fibroblasts and the diabetic fibroblasts, uh, there was no difference to their in their response to bradykinin. But if we treated them overnight with TNF-alpha or IL-1 beta, a huge difference evolved. And you can see I'm showing here the individual patients. And so on the left are the uh, controls on the right of the diabetics, and there's almost no overlap. There were a few of the controls that had relatively higher responses. And in evaluating those, we found that they had first degree relatives with type one diabetes. Mm. So this is an, an, an amazing huge, in studying human samples, they're never very similar. They usually cover a huge range of values. So this much separation was a big surprise to us. Yeah, it's remarkable. And it, it's not necessarily bad, it's just, it's different. Mm -hmm. But now here is an, uh, a sort of summary of, of the findings that we, that we got with these diabetic fibroblasts. 
something similar happened in the controls, but not nowhere near as markedly. And so what you can see on the, can I make my thing go? Yeah, on this lowest trace is the, this is a measuring cytosolic free calcium in real time. And there's a transient rise in calcium in response to bradykinin. Now, if the cells have been treated overnight with TNF or IL-1, that response is much bigger. And that's what I just showed you. But if they were treated overnight with fatty acid, it was even bigger still. And when the two were combined, it was humongous, almost 10 times higher. And this difference uh, was very consistent across all of the samples that we, that we had to our shock and surprise. Then uh, what I want the take home from these studies in wound healing is that type one cells from type one diabetics are more sensitive to TNF and free fatty acids than control. And what that means, we don't know. It, it could be, you could imagine it might be beneficial because in wound healing, that might make them heal better uh, when under some circumstances, but we didn't know what it meant. It was just very curious. Okay, now on to the third area, and that is the beta cell uh, studies. And um, beta cells are, uh, or subjects who are going to develop type two diabetes are hyperinsulinemic at basal glucose levels. That insulin level without stimulatory glucose is sometimes as high as five to 10 times greater than a lean normal control. So they, um, and, and we know a lot about what, how glucose stimulates insulin secretion, but there's been very little done on what stimulates basal insulin secretion. But what we do know is that it's not the same thing as what stimulates uh, glucose stimulated. Calcium is not involved. And so we sought to find out what might be involved. And this is two slides that I'm gonna show you that illustrate this. So uh, we have here on the left, um, normal glucose, three millimolar, and then we increase it to 20 and you get a, a big increase in insulin secretion. Now, if we keep at three millimolar and we add a little peroxide in, we see that there's a concentration dependent increase. The only variable here is ROS or peroxide, which is the predominant form of reactive oxygen species in, in uh, cells. And we can do the same thing. We've done it over on the, on the right panel using DEM, which generates peroxide inside the cell. And again, at three millimolar glucose, increasing uh, peroxide generation increases insulin secretion. So this is one thing that we could think about that uh, could impact. Uh, the other thing that is gonna help us tie all this together is lipid. And I showed in the first uh, slide with the fibroblasts that um, fibroblasts from type one diabetics accumulate more lipid than others when exposed to 
fatty acid. So these now are beta cells exposed to excess nutrient, grown in excess nutrient, and then tested at normal glucose levels. And here we have insulin secretion at four millimolar glucose in these cells. And these cells have been grown for 24 to 48 hours, uh, either in five millimolar glucose, 11 millimolar glucose, low glucose plus fatty acid, and high glucose plus fatty acid. And on the bottom here, I've measured the lipid content of these beta cells. So in response to the excess nutrient, they accumulate lipid just the way those fibroblasts did. And that it correlates very nicely with the lipid content and the basal insulin secretion. So we have two things here now that relate back to what I started telling you about that peroxide or ROS or, you know, which is generated through inflammation and cytokines causes insulin secretion and lipid accumulation causes insulin secretion. So with those two things varying only and none of the other parameters that we know that are involved with uh, glucose stimulated insulin secretion, we could explain basal insulin secretion. And we also know that if we scavenge ROS with a ROS scavenger like N-acetylcysteine, we inhibit insulin secretion. So it appears that ROS is both essential and sufficient to stimulate insulin secretion without anything else. It's not as good a stimulus in, in, in a physiological sense as glucose is, but it could explain basal hypersecretion, at least in part. So now we come to the hypothesis. Beta cells respond to cytokines and lipids with increased ROS production. That's well known. Since inflammatory diseases often occur in individuals before the onset of type 1 diabetes, uh, in fact, a lot of viruses, I think, have been studied as potential causes, and, but none of them have really panned out as the uh, as, an as the important cause. But with each one of these inflammatory events, um, there would be increases in cytokines and free fatty acids and consequent ROS production. So this would then lead to, let me see if I can do this, ves increased vesicle cycling. So this is these granules, uh, come to the plasma membrane, secrete their insulin, and then go back in, go round and around and around. And, and the more basal activity you have, the more this process occurs. So there'd be increased, so this would then um, increase this process with TNF and free fatty acids, the two conditions that we found. If TNF also inhibited fatty acid oxidation, it, it would also deprive of energy. So in the end, we would have increased vesicle trafficking, uh, increased basal secretion, at least transiently during these events, and increased granule turnover, much as occurs in type 2 diabetes. However, in, in the absence of adequate energy, uh, if, if we had the same process, TNF inhibiting uh, oxidation, 
they would be defective granular protein processing. And this could lead to uh, odd products that come from the processing uh, uh, pathway being secreted. It could also lead to presentation of proteins that don't normally have that much presentation to the immune system. And, um, and, and, and also the ROS production, the peroxide would ultimately lead to cell damage. And so our, the hypothesis that I'm presenting to you and that I'm encouraging people who might be interested to test is that the cause of autoimmunity in type one diabetes is prior infection or possibly also ROS generating environmental toxins that this would lead to increased vesicle trafficking presentation of antigens uh, to the uh, immune system insulin processing defects. And so you would expect more pro-insulin or partial insulin processed relative to C-peptide, um, which in fact does occur, uh, and increased oxidative damage due to sustained ROS elevation. If this hypothesis is correct, it has some potential remedies that we could recommend. And first of all, the simplest thing would be to test the effect of increasing fat oxidizing capacity because this, this very high lipid component would be diminished if the beta of, of all of the cells in the body, never mind the beta cells, were more uh, able or willing or programmed to oxidize more fat. And in fact, children often have a very uh, low, a relatively low fat diet, a relatively high carb diet. So lowering, lowering the carbs, upping the fat, or in addition to that, there are drugs, fibrates like fenfibrate and bezafibrate that induce fat oxidizing capacity. So it'd be interesting to see whether or not there could be a benefit to those. Of course, this benefit would want to be uh, applied prior to the development of type two diabetes, not after the disease has, is in place. The other uh, implication of this hypothesis, should it be proven correct, is that it would um, encourage people to treat infection in, in susceptible individuals very rigorously, and in particular to ma maintain blood glucose and energy supply. And then finally, I think, well, I think another possibility is that inhibiting TNF binding to its receptor, uh, pri again, prior to severe onset of disease might be useful. And, and finally, scavenging ROS, if the elevation in ROS, and this can readily be measured in the blood, is sustained beyond the period of infection. So there you have it. That's my model. This is really interesting. Um, I, I have a couple of questions and I'm sure that uh, members of the audience do as well. <clears throat> I'd like to invite the audience first to ask a few questions. Yeah, I could. Uh, could I say something? Yes, please. Yeah, it could be that uh, the beta cells do not relax and um, we are now as published that uh, 
it's important for beta cells not to be too active. And maybe the relaxation is the most important thing like um, in psychology, so to speak. And uh, fatty acid uh, making higher um, uh, fasting um, or basal blood glucose levels would uh, by itself be dangerous for the beta cells. So it could be a very good idea just to uh, lower the free fatty acids. Um, uh, and the model could well be used, but it could also just be that the beta cells are not relaxing enough. And then it, um, the beta cells um, express more antigen, which is uh, dangerous to do too much for the immune system and so on. And then the process could start. Totally agree with you. I th and, I, and I think it's easily doable and very testable. And, uh, I, you know, I hope, I mean, I'm not doing active research anymore. As, as you know, I'm an emeritus professor now. So I've stopped fighting with my trainees for grant money. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and I'm still doing. <laughs> I've written a review on this that I'm about to submit to diabetes. <laughs> and, yeah. and Carson, I think I, I, I might recommend you as one of the reviewers. And, and <laughs> I'm, I'm overjoyed to be criticized on this because, it, you know, it's a, it's a new area for me. But yes, I agree with what you're saying. And I think the other thing I didn't really talk about is that, and I know nothing about immunology, is that the, the different immune cells that are involved in the damage to beta cells are sensitive to lipids and cytokines. And I'm not sure how that would play in, but I know that there are people in the field who can figure that out and it, it's testable. Yes, so, yeah. yes. Lower the fact. Oh, sorry, I just but, wondered. But as you can see, uh, and, and active beta cells are more likely, it produce uh, 1 million insulin molecules per minute or something very fantastic. And such a beta cells are more likely to come out with a wrong molecule which attracts attention for the immune system. And um, this could, uh, at the very end, start the process. Yeah. So it's interesting in both type one and type two, the pro-insulin to C-peptide ratio rises. And, and, and uh, you know, in type one diabetics, even long-term diabetics, they have uh, measurable pro-insulin sometimes. Yes, yes, that's right. And so this to me is amazing. It, what it says, it, 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 it directs our attention to an, uh, something that happens in the processing. Mm. And uh, I think that I didn't talk about calcium, but calcium is screwed up also by cytokines. And so yeah. it depletes the ER of calcium, which is necessary for uh, pro-insulin or insulin processing. And, and also for many of the other events that occur in putting a granule together. So yeah, that's, uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think it fit, I think the model fits as far as I could tell with available data. It isn't a proven model. And I don't want to mm -hmm. overblow this. I, I wouldn't want to make, give a wrong impression or mislead anybody. I think it's great though, to sort of just put it out there as food for thought for people to start thinking about, um, you know, the 
the physiology, the mechanism and the bigger picture. A lot of times I think people are very focused on their one approach, you know, the genetics, the omics, the, or, you know, the immunology events. And so I think the whole, bringing it together in this sort of a physiological um, perspective is, is really helpful. And I would also wonder if, Carson, if you could speak a little bit about your phenofibrate um, data. And I'd love to hear what, you know, Barbara thinks. Yes, uh, first I can say that uh, it might be like in human psychology, it's not bad to be stressed once in a while, but it's bad not to uh, relax once in a while. Relax seems to be very important. And what we do with the phenofibrate, that is to, um, giving to newly type 1 diabetic patients or even better maybe to uh, antibody positive patients, uh, which we haven't done as yet, uh, to give uh, to give phenofibrate to them. And it um, increases the amount of sulfur type, which seems to be very important for the beta cells. And actually it increases, especially the long chain sulfur type, the c um, 24 lengths of sulfatide, uh, which um, is uh, immune one, which uh, stop the immune system, whereas the shorter one, C16 sulfatide, is doing a lot of physiological things uh, in manufacturing insulin. It's a chaperone to insulin, but uh, the C24 is the one to stop the immune system and which has been published. You can just look up my name on sulfatide and, and so on. So, but what was the drug you, I didn't catch the drug you would like to give, it was some fibrate, what was it, Barbara? Beta fibrate, which I think is available in Europe but not in the United States. Beta fibrate? Yeah. Yeah, oh, I don't it's know. It's actually got some beautiful data that, is largely ignored, but in type two diabetics. Yeah. But I mean, the argument, the damage that can happen to a beta cell not handling fat adequately is, is, applies both to type one and to type two. Yes. I may be perceived as a parallel to, you know, serious burns um, when a kid or, or someone is, ha, have a terrible burn, then there sometimes come, uh, can come um, um, a, an episode of uh, hyper, hyperglycemia because um, insulin production uh, should be very high but too low for the demanding. And right. uh, yeah, you know that. There's also yeah. been some talk recently about the fact that maybe in some cases, because it's a very heterogeneous disease, that the alpha cell may be dysfunctional or maybe it's dysfunctional first, right? And what does that lead to? Um, so, you know, I mean, it's kind of a, it is a heterogeneous disease. So there's, there's many roads to, to the, you know, <clears throat> to the ultimate uh, diagnosis, I suppose. Yeah, and, and, and this really doesn't um, limit, it, it, it doesn't address many other, I mean, there are many other aspects that, that are fairly well established, but, uh, and 
I think my analogy was that what we found in fibroblasts, which have nothing to do with type one diabetes, really, it was just a model system, um, probably is true of all cells. Mm -hmm. It's probably, uh, you know, the, the, the dose response could be a little different. The sensitivity could be a little different, but importantly, I didn't mention this, the raw scavenging system in beta cells is much less and this is not, this is both good and bad because ROS is a very important signal for fuel excess. Hmm. And it's probably why the beta cell in a healthy individual responds very rapidly to an increase in fuel availability. Hmm. Um, but in excess, it does all these other bad things. So, you know, it's, I think most things in nature are kind of bell shaped, there's the right amount and then there's too much. And uh, it, you need to be in the right part of the curve. Yes, yes. It's a, often a balance between, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. In you, to your knowledge, is there, a, it, have there been any studies where children have been involved in, you know, who, who are at risk with, because of a genetic marker or maybe one biomarker in a dietary um, trial where they are, you know, their diet is more high fat, low carb, as you sort of talked about. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know the field, but Karsten will know. No, no, I, I don't know that. We have been involved in, in gluten-free trials and so on. Um, but it's a discussion uh, also in tattoo, uh, what should you give? Not too much sugar, not too much fat, not too much protein. What should you eat the protein? <laughs> Yeah. I, I would I would have an extreme view on this, yes. and that is that uh, anyone with diabetes type one or type two does not need any carbohydrate. Period. Yeah. yeah. And in yeah. fact, I have written a cookbook called CarboLightPlan.org that's free for everybody, and the focus is actually as much on eliminating processed foods, but it's also eliminating yeah. carbs while making with children you have to it has to taste good yeah. <laughs> uh, but you mean uh, you you said say not carbohydrate but refined carbohydrate no i mean carbohydrate period they don't we don't need any well mm. it's interesting that you know this is a real um i am aware of a of a group um you know, let me be 83. It's a group, a parent run group that aligns with uh, Dr. Uh, um, uh, what is his name? Dr. Bernstein, Dr. Uh, oh gosh, I can't remember his name right now. But anyway, he, they, they, they really are proponents of this low carb um, lifestyle and they have shown um, pretty good results with, you yeah. know, management of the diabetes in terms of the highs and lows. Um, with this kind of dietary approach? I have used it, my, my cookbook, with three family members who had diabetes. They do not have diabetes anymore. One of them was on insulin and had gained a lot of weight on insulin and lost the weight she'd gained on insulin and went off all medication and has a hemoglobin A1C of about 5.7. But that's a type two person, correct? Yeah, yeah, must be you. But I, I, I used to uh, be on a talk circuit with a guy whose name I don't remember, who was not a not a physician or a scientist, but he was a type one diabetic, 
And he uh, actually, he was involved in getting outdated insulin from all the companies that make insulin and distributing it to uh, poor people in underdeveloped countries that couldn't afford insulin. So he was, you know, he's a really good guy. And he, uh, he said he used to be an unstable type one diabetic with frequent ketoacidosis and hospital admissions and so on. And he eliminated carbs from his diet and has not had a hospital admission since that time. It makes sense. The problem is handling carbs. That's what is, requires the insulin. This is. You know, that fat yeah. really doesn't, fat metabolism really doesn't require insulin. Yeah. But yeah. you need for your brain to have some sugars. Uh, yeah, but you can fast for 40, look at uh, George Cahill's studies on people who yeah. fasted for 40 days with no, or 30 days, I don't remember. You, our body fat stores are adequate. I mean, I'm not suggesting yeah, that yeah. to eat. <laughs> and and you can't really eliminate carbs. Yeah, yeah. You, you can only try to eliminate carbs. Yeah. But as I said, if you you don't need them, and and if if that will help, what's wrong with that? Mm -hmm. And if if this model is is correct, then um, the more you continue to stimulate your failing beta cells the sooner they're going to fail completely. Yeah, yes. and it's interesting though that the 80, you know, the, the pediatric, um, the pediatricians do not recommend that. I don't, you know, I just have not seen this recommendation uh, to patients that have the, you know, one um, biomarker or are at risk. It, I have not seen that on the radar that that's the recommendation and further, I know my own daughter was diagnosed with type one. The doctor was, was of this idea, like just eat whatever you want and um, give insulin for it, you know? And, and I, we did go low yeah. carb right away. And I, I felt like that preserved her honeymoon for some, for longer. Yeah. But, but then you should, uh, um, you should uh, of course uh, see that uh, before type one diabetes, you should avoid to stress your beta cells. When right. the sedum has occurred and you take insulin, then uh, it's, you should do what you're doing. But before type 1 diabetes, I think it's crucial not to stress the beta cells. There is a Poseidon study, I do know, in uh, Florida, that they are looking, yeah. they're trying to, they have a whole way of eating that they disseminate through their group of parents with have, that have kids that are at risk. But I think outside of that, I don't think there's any recommendations through the medical community. It's interesting. You can't blame the medical community because they base, they're not the ones that do the studies that determine how, uh, what's effective treatment. It comes out of, it comes out of science and the science is what informs the medical. It, it will change. There is increasing uh, evidence and increasing focus on this, but it just takes a long time to implement yeah. a, ch a change in, in, in treatment. I, I despair every time I see any carbohydrates recommended by the uh, any organization. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yet they 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 all uh, 
they, none of them say what I'm saying, but I think in, in, in the end, they will. Yeah. Um, I should say that uh, we have written several papers on this, and one of the papers is a study in mice or rats where we gave them food only every other day. And um, then they eat a lot that day and the beta cell was stressed at the eating day, but then it relaxed the other day and it had substantially lower um, incidence of diabetes. So, so interestingly, in that regard, that's a little bit like fenfibrate because what happens when you fast for that period of time is that you induce the enzymes that metabolize fat. And uh, because your body depends yeah, of course. on that. Yeah. And, and, and so effectively, you're inducing the capacity to oxidize fat. Interesting. This has yeah. been a fascinating discussion. I think you both are, uh, you know, obviously so at the top of your field. And it's really interesting to hear the communication between both of you and these new I mean, maybe not, uh, I mean, I think you've shine a, shining a light on these ideas, right? And pulling together, pulling them together in such a really elegant way and offering them out there to the community and saying, you know, check this out. I think that's amazing. So I think Karsten has been the leader in, <laughs> the floor in, in this innovative approach to yeah. treatment. And I haven't seen people following you and I'm sorry that that's the yeah. case. But uh, perhaps we can have an impact. You have to keep on fighting. Yeah. It will come, it will come. It will come, I agree with yeah. you. Yeah, the, sure. uh, there's so much, there, there's, and this is sort of off the record, I'll probably stop a little bit before this, but uh, you know, it's a little bit of, um, there's certain fashion, right, there in science where people are following certain ideas and they all gra gravitate towards it. And then, you know, but then you, you just don't know what's gonna come uh, from other ways of thinking about things. And it's not always, you know, the where the masses are. Uh, sometimes you can find something outside of, of the... Um, sure, know. sure. So I think the, a final word would be that the problem here in type one is autoimmunity. We know an awful lot about what happens, what the destruction is and what goes on once the disease gets underway. Yeah, I think we need to have focus on the earlier times. What causes yeah. autoimmunity? The prodrome. We yeah, we need we and and maybe my model is wrong, but I think we should welcome other models that right. are consistent with available data. Because if we all who care about this focus on figuring it out, we're much more likely to find a solution than if we don't do anything. I agree. And I think that the time is uh, now, there's a lot of new tools in the space. There's a lot of new approaches. There's a lot more data. And so if we can mm -hmm. understand the etiology of this heterogeneous autoimmune disease, it may open the doors to, to understanding many other types of disease like this. So, all right then, <laughs> yeah. I'll let you get back to your, to your days. Thank, Thank you, you so much for joining. Really yeah, it was highly interesting. It was great. I'll hope Thank to you. see you again in the future, both of you. Yeah. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye. Bye-bye.